Welcome to the Action Research Podcast. Somehow, the first podcast dedicated solely to action research. Each episode, action research experts Adam and Joe explore facets of this research methodology. Speaking with experienced and emerging action researchers, they aim to contribute to this important and growing field and understand the nuance and process of action research in action. The Action Research Network of the Americas is pleased to sponsor this podcast and invites you to be part of their eighth annual conference, Co-Creating Knowledge, Empowering Communities, virtually this year, with sessions throughout the month of June. Information about the conference can be found at arnawebsite.org conferences. Now back to your hosts. My name is Adam Stieglitz, PhD candidate at the University of Louisville and also director and co-founder of the Andean Alliance for Sustainable Development, a social change organization in the highlands of Peru. My name is Joe Levitan, an assistant professor and graduate program director at McGill University, as well as the co-founder and co-director of Centro Educativo Payatayu, a community-based learning center in the Peruvian Andes. This episode is gonna be a little different. It's just Adam and Joe. In response to a lot of inquiries we've gotten about community-based participatory action research, or CBPAR, Joe is going to put on his professor hat as Dr. Levitan and get a little theoretical with a mini-lecture. After an overview of some key definitions, principles, and differences between CBPAR and other types of action research, Adam and Joe will dig into a practical discussion of this paradigm as related to their own work in the field. Let's jump right in. I'm going to switch on my Dr. Levitan hat now and start to give a little overview of this theoretical stuff. So before we talk about CBPAR, I think it's important to talk about action research, participatory action research, and then CBPAR because they are all related, but they are different in terms of some of the aims and some of the scope and relationships that are developed within them. So as we delve into CBPAR, I first want to establish some foundation because as the Action Research Podcast, we're talking about action research very broadly. Uh, That includes all the different permutations and kinds of action research that are available. But because of that, we need to be very clear in terms of some of our definitions. So in terms of action research, the most recent version of the action research textbook by Stringer and Ortiz Aragon, Alfredo, who's a friend of the podcast, they define action research as a way to directly engage the complex dynamics of given social contexts in order to accomplish practical solutions to issues affecting people's lives. Action research involves the use of analytic frameworks and reflective processes to investigate real-life issues that have an impact on people's lives and threaten their well-being. And then I also want to share a few principles about what action research is according to the University of Cincinnati Center for Action Research, because I think this is really useful. Action research is inquiry done by or with insiders, never at or to them, takes place in a community or organization, is a deliberate and systematic reflective process, it is evidence that is being presented to support assertions, it is collaboration between, it is oriented in some action or cycle, it involves membership at all aspects of research. So what we can pull out from there is action research is the process of engaging with communities in a collaborative way where you do a process of look, think, act, uh, as they say in the action research textbook. The important thing is that this is a process that is done to address an issue that is practical, that is community, 
oriented or organizationally oriented, but it is really focused on solving a specific problem. And it is very open in terms of what it could be. So it could be an individual working with community members or organizational members. It could be a teacher in the classroom working with students. It is a very open-ended way of engaging with action and research and what it means to collect information and then act on that. That's action research considered broadly. When we talk about something like participatory action research, which is not CBPAR, but it is getting closer to that paradigm, one of the things that started to develop in the field of action research is that other researchers realized that the general framework of action research is really useful, but sometimes this very broad framework doesn't necessarily focus as directly on different facets of the action research process as it might need to in certain contexts. So participatory action research, or PAR, focuses more specifically on the collaborative and democratizing possibility of action research and engages participants in an intentionally equitable and democratic way throughout the AR process. This is ideally speaking. The difference is that action research does not have a specific orientation towards some of these equitable and democratic ways of engaging in research and action processes. Although it incorporates it, it's not a major focus because action researchers can independently do action research. Participatory action research, in contrast, looks very specifically at this much more democratic, power-shifting way of thinking through action research. Some other key differences include action research as a paradigm is philosophically oriented towards an epistemological stance, so a stance about what knowledge is and how to create knowledge. One of the action research premises is that knowledge should improve some aspect of life and that inquiry, action, and reflection are effective ways to do so. In contrast, participatory action research as a paradigm is more aligned with postmodern philosophical traditions, so looking at perspectives of multivocality, power, shared realities, and those serve as the foundation for engaging in work. So thinking through what it means to have my positionality as Joe versus Adam and his positionality versus Vanessa and her positionality and Shika and her positionality. And how do we work together with these different positionalities to move forward and solve problems? For example, in the Action Research Podcast, or you know, if we're solving an issue in terms of equity and education, thinking through what it means to be a student, what it means to be a parent, what it means to be a teacher, and what it means to be a leader. Those facets of positionality, multivocality are really important in participatory action research. One of the foundational premises of participatory action research is that people have a right to determine their own development and that the people concerned in this participatory action research project need to be meaningfully involved in the processes of identifying, analyzing, and enacting solutions. So they should have power and control over the processes to reshape community life or some aspect of it. Action research does not determine that in the same way as participatory action research does. So this focus on shifting power and making sure that those involved are active, engaged participants and have the power to shape their community life or some aspect of it is really foundational to this. So this is based on a 1997 article by Atwood and McIntyre, 2002. So we got action research, which is a little bit broader, doesn't determine certain levels of power sharing and power dynamics. Participatory action research, which is much more focused on democratizing the process. And then we have community-based participatory action research. So CBPAR emerged from a realization that practices in action research 
and participatory action research often falls short on community collaboration. So even though participatory action research focuses on democratic processes, community collaboration is a very complicated and difficult facet of what it means to do participatory action research. And so CBPAR developed its own paradigms and methodologies to really think through what it means to live and work in community and collaborate. So a pillar of CBPAR is specifically focusing on community-based processes in the work, such as the interpersonal dynamics and architectures needed to do this research in socially just ways, which is what McTaggart, Nixon, Chemist wrote about in 2016 and Stanton in 2013. CBPAR also focused specifically on communities that are marginalized or that face deeply rooted injustices, whether those are system or acute, often both. So the difference between systemic injustice is that it runs throughout certain organizations or society. And that means that there are constant small and sometimes large facets of injustice, like who has access to education or who gets selected for different jobs or things like that. But then acute injustices are things like when somebody is actively discriminated against. Acute acts of injustice are often a symptom of systemic issues of injustice, but they are not always the same, and sometimes they are separate. So with CBPAR, this requires thinking through decolonizing approaches and practices, deeper analysis into relational dynamics, including considerations of power, voice, and collaboration to understand knowledge creation and collaborative action. CBPAR also often grounds the epistemological stance of knowledge in the paradigms of the community. So instead of thinking about it from a stance of the person who is facilitating CBPAR as the knowledge holder who needs to use a development paradigm or a neoliberal paradigm, the idea is to shift where the power of knowledge is being generated and make sure that the community members themselves are generating the knowledge from the paradigm that they live in. What that means is when we are engaging in relational work, we are thinking through what it means to have knowledge grounded in the community and what it means to be an outsider, for example, what it means to think through whose knowledge is of most worth and make sure that that knowledge is centered on the knowledges of the community members who are most directly affected by the problem at hand. That doesn't mean that you need to ignore or disregard other knowledge, but that the foundational knowledge itself is within the community. And if there's new knowledge that needs to be learned or gained through different kinds of practices, it's still coming from the source of strength within the community knowledge itself. These are some of the ways in which community-based participatory action research is slightly different than participatory action research because it goes deeper into what it means to be working with communities who are facing deep structural or systemic issues of marginalization and exclusion. And it thinks more carefully through the implications and the challenges and the problems that people face when trying to do this kind of work. And that's why it's really useful to think about it here because each of these paradigms, action research, participatory action research, and community-based participatory action research are really useful for different contexts. But specifically when talking about contexts where there are historical issues of marginalization, oppression, and exclusion, community-based participatory action research is a radical way to reformulate what it means to solve the issues that communities are identifying by fundamentally shifting the ways that knowledge is collected and understood, and also the solutions that are being enacted by the community. So there, I have put on my professor hat. I'm going to take off my professor hat. Well, actually, I need to put my professor hat back on for a second. 
before, <laughs> before I get done, one thing I wanted to say was there are some principles that are foundational to CVPAR. Not everybody would agree with me, but I think that these are pretty comprehensive. So I want to share them so that we can get a good foundation for CVPAR in our conversation. First, scholars need to recognize and value community members and the community itself as a partner in the process and also the key knowledge holder and the community members as the key power brokers within the dynamic. The research process should be comprehensively collaborative. So that means from the start, before you define a problem, you're there with a the community, all the way to the analysis of what the data means and then the enactment of that should be completely collaborative. Now we can talk about that in terms of the ideal versus the real and what that means, because as we've talked about in past episodes, sometimes people got other things they got to do. And so they can't always be there at the entire time. So we think about how that looks in practice. Results need to benefit all partners via continuous action and clear application. So this is actually by Israel and colleagues that was written in 1998 and Stanton in 2013. Self-reflexive understandings of research positionality are needed prior to engaging the work. For the university researcher especially, intentional positioning as a co-learner and a co-worker is really important and thinking through the implications of that is also really important. Trusting, respectful, and reciprocal relationships must be developed, and they must be developed before, and they must be developed during, and they must be developed after. And then there are four other R's in terms of CVPAR principles that are important. Respect, relevance, reciprocity, and responsibility. And this is from Stanton, 2013. Respect, time commitments must be manageable for participants. Relationships between, for example, native and non-native, and I'm quoting, participants need to be long-lasting and trusting. Native participants should engage in all phases of the project. In terms of relevance, again, I'm quoting from Stanton, community interests must direct the project's design and implementation. Oral history, storytelling, and dialogue should guide the project. Meaning-making should be guided by Native community members. Reciprocity, share results with teachers, school leaders, community members, and teacher educators. Project process should promote learning, healing, and personal change for all participants. Findings should lead to practical change in schools and communities. And then in terms of responsibility, project design must center upon tribal protocol. Non-native scholar participants must share control of the project with native participants. And stories must be shared in appropriate ways. So that's the end of my quote of Stanton. But I think those four R's are pretty useful to think about. Some of those things we can push even further. And I think that we've pushed them a little bit further since 2013 in terms of what it means to shift the power dynamics. But it does bring into light some of the tricky issues about what it means to do community-based participatory action research and what does it mean to radically reimagine and recreate power dynamics between people from different positionalities. So that's where I am going to take off my professor hat. That was a lot of really good information. I think it'll serve as a really useful tool and resource for anybody who is involved with or getting involved with the world of action research. My one comment, or I don't want to dive too much into the what is, and I do want to bring this to the practical realm, but my one comment is the following. Everything that you said really resonates with me, especially as somebody that has been facilitating these types of projects or research in the field for a while now. I think what's missing from that is like a disclaimer that action research is messy, you know? And while I think those are perfect guiding principles, they really are. I think it's safe to say that in the field it doesn't always go that way, right? If, if you've got your action research checklist and you're taking it step by step by step, you're going to get somewhere, but you don't want to get caught up 
you know, in the realm where your eyes aren't open to what's going on around you and being able to shift and, and really evolve, right? Because action research is emergent, it's iterative, and, you know, whatever plan you might be taking into a project or a design or investigation, you have to be ready for it to get thrown right back in your face and screw everything up and be adaptable, you know? So, you know, I mean, everything that you said is absolutely spot on, you know, but my experience is that it is messy. And I'd like to talk a little bit about that because I think that there's things that are easier to pull off in the field than others. And I think part of the larger discussion that we need to be having as a community of action researchers and students and budding scholars, you know, are the things that not only we know go well, but also the areas that we're struggling in and sharing best practices, if you will, for how to overcome some of those challenges. Do you, have you experienced that messiness in the field as well? Or, or do you think it is as sort of cut and dry a leads to B leads to C, and then you're doing action research. I'm really glad you brought that up because I think that when you start to theorize, like especially when you're talking about principles, they get removed from the context. And so, yeah, action research is absolutely messy. And I think it would be even better to add that as one of the principles of all of these paradigms, which is you need to be flexible, you need to keep your eyes open, you need to be iterative, you need to make mistakes, and you need to learn from those mistakes as a community. And also, you're not always going to achieve whatever you may have set out for, but you may achieve something better or you may have achieved something just completely different. So I think one of the problems with academia is that we take tons of messy experiences and we'll talk about that. Your work, my work, I can say that I've done a number of CBPAR projects. Some of them went fairly well, some of them didn't, but then we still accomplished something together that was not what I thought was gonna be accomplished, but it ended up working out. And I think that messiness is totally part of the fundamental impetus and ethics of action research. So I'm really glad you brought that up because I think that is crucial to think through what it means to do action research. And I think we have some pretty good examples of that, you and I, when we're talking about our work, because, you know, my Dr. Levitan hat and my professor hat that I just put on, I was trying to distill a lot of really complicated ideas into some pretty clear points so that it would translate well to the action research podcast. But the most important stuff is when you try to do this and put it into action and all the messiness and conflicts and issues that come up from that. So I think that's what we should talk about. One of the things that I think would be really useful is for you to tell some of our listeners about what current action research projects you're working on and what falls within the realm of CBPAR, because I think you have some really great experience that can be learned from. I have to offer a little bit of context as opposed to what I'm doing here in Peru with the Andean Alliance for Sustainable Development. It's an organization that I co-founded with my colleague Aaron Abner back in 2010 when we were master's students. We were studying all these like responsible development practices. We were throwing around terms like bottom-up development and asset-based community development, all this stuff. And all of our programs were designed around a problem. Right. And it wasn't until later that I looked back and realized that what we were doing was action research. Just thought we were doing kind of like development work. But the problem here in the Andes is that, you know, these are agrarian communities. They're really marginalized, geographically marginalized, socially marginalized. They're indigenous communities. So they, you know, their, their history is deep rooted in, in colonialism and, you know, they're politically marginalized. We are starting to work with a new population of people here in Peru. So we're kind of like in the in the beginning, this nascent phase of a community-based participatory action research project, working with coffee farmers. So what is the project that we're about to start now? Well, having worked with the government here for many years, they've been involved with coffee farmers. We've gone out and visited 
these communities that grow coffee, they're really far, really isolated. One community in particular is called Mendozayoc. There's literally not even road access there. There's barely electricity. And they are located about 1,500 to 2,000 meters above sea level. So that's about between 5,000, 6,000 feet, more or less. And they are growing really good coffee. There's a couple problems though. One is that they are facing a very serious coffee disease. It's called Roya Amadia. It's a fungus that grows on coffee leaves and it causes the plant to dry up. It doesn't produce fruit. And the farmers that we're working with are losing between 30 and 75% of their total production. Now these communities are really poor already. The lack of road access makes transportation, in other words, getting their coffee to a quote unquote market, not only challenging, but costly. And the fact that they're dealing with these coffee diseases is really impeding on their ability to make a living. So one problem is that they're dealing with this coffee disease. The second problem is that the people that are buying coffee from them, the fact that these communities are so isolated, they really have no access to markets. So the people that are buying coffee from them are offering below market wages, even though the quality of their coffee is really high. Through discussions with them, through spending time out in these communities, we are starting to work together with them to do two things. One, to help them improve the production of their coffee, and second, to improve the quality of their coffee. All through agroecological practices, which is our expertise as an organization, and hopefully by increasing production and quality, they'll be able to have a better livelihood. So that's sort of like the nuts and bolts of what we're doing. I'm gonna kind of leave it at that and kind of see what follow-up questions maybe you have or what areas I could focus on as it relates to how this is action research. Well, yeah, that's a, that's really interesting. It sounds like a really challenging situation for this community and communities in the area. How did you get involved with that? And, you know, one of the things that we were talking about was the role of relationships. And I think one of the things that you highlighted in the overview of your project was you're really trying to do some kind of collaborative problem solving to make sure that this blight that has hit the coffee plants will be overcome through community-based ways that are sustainable. It doesn't sound like you're going to be doing something like coming in with a bunch of, you know, pesticide and just wipe it down and clear it out and ruin the area and then start again. It sounds like you're trying to do something a little bit different. So one of the things is thinking through what the problem is, which you highlighted really well. And then also, how are you working with the community members to address this issue and then think through the economic justice issues that you were talking about? I mean, there's a lot there, you know? Yeah, yeah, for sure. So first, with respect to how we got involved, I'm going to try and sum it up in three succinct ways so that it's useful for our listeners as well as interesting. One way had to do with our relationships with the local municipality, right? So anybody who's engaging in community-based participatory action research, CDPAR, consider who the actors are around you that have a stake in what you're doing, right? I know we all want to just look at what we're doing, focus primarily on what we're doing, pat ourselves on the back, but there's often many stakeholders in these uh, situations, especially when the problems are complex one of which is typically the municipality. So since we've been working with the municipality on our agriculture projects with the greenhouses, coffee has a pretty prominent presence within the discussions with the municipality wants to support, although 
whether they have or haven't been is a topic of another discussion. So maintaining relationships and communication with stakeholders locally was important. The second thing was actually going out to these communities. For the last 10 years, the organization, especially my colleague Aaron, has been going out to these communities to visit and just kind of talk to farmers. There's a lot of municipal support. And although communities are, you know, hard to access, they have access. These communities in the jungle, I mean, literally the road ends and you have to hike two more hours just to get there. So because of that, there's very little NGO support. There's very little municipal presence. So when we show up, regardless of the fact that we're white males from the United States, you know, at first community members are a little bit skeptical, but ultimately when they keep seeing your face, you know, you start to build that trust and confidence and, and you create dialogue. So that's how we started, create, you know, understanding more about what the challenge is and building relationships. So the, the first, you know, way was being aware of the stakeholders around you and communicating with them. The second was showing face, right? And actually being in the community, regardless of where it's located. And then the third was a little bit more nuanced, but um, once we started building that trust and having these conversations and really understanding the problem, there were a group of farmers that our organization brought to Calca, where our office is located, for a capacity building workshop and commercialization, right? Because these farmers were getting taken advantage of by their buyers. So we were working with coffee farmers, along with strawberry farmers, vegetable farmers, flower farmers, to help, you know, teach about basic business skills, how to, even something as simple as like how to talk with someone or negotiate with someone who's buying your products, set prices, manage your financing, that sort of thing. And through that workshop, we facilitated some participatory activities, visioning activities. We drew rich pictures where the community kind of worked in groups to draw out what their ideal um, situation was. And we realized that with these coffee farmers, th this challenge with the coffee disease was really devastating. And they were on the brink of completely giving up working their farms on coffee and switching to other products like coca, for example, you know, which creates all other problems. So it was through that workshop, that facilitated activity that we decided to really start engaging with this community. We raised the funding that we needed, and now we're working with them to start addressing this issue of the coffee leaf rust. So let me just do like the action and reflection as we're doing this podcast. So I'm just going to take what you said and try to apply it to some of these points about CBPAR. One of the things that I heard you say was that you have this very well-established nonprofit organization that does a lot of farmer-oriented work, including capacity building, outreach, and also facilitating access through financial means to make sure that community members have access to certain goods and materials to address community needs. So one of the things that I heard was just that you have already established a relationship and through these relationships with community members in the municipality, you got connected with this group of farmers in Mendoza. They came over and you facilitated a collaborative learning process where they were the ones directing where their values and what their ideals are going to be in terms of what they want to see, which is where the power lies in terms of who is orienting the total objective of what you want to see happening. That's what I heard when I heard you talking about these visioning processes and these engaged participatory learning activities. Community members, these, these farmers, these representatives come in and they say, here's what our ideal situation would look like. So what do we need to do now? And so you start to facilitate a process where they're the ones driving the project, but you're the facilitators to make sure that there are things that you can provide in terms of education, 
in terms of making sure that you might have some particular level of expertise, such as negotiation or thinking through what it means to have economic justice for selling goods. You're able to share that with them and they can take that and use it for their own purposes. So it's not that you're telling them what to do. You're just saying, here's some information and here's how we're going to work together to make sure that your purposes and your needs, as you have defined them, are going to be met through what we can offer you. I just want to quickly respond because it's spot on. And one of the core facets embedded in that is part of our organizational philosophy, which is that you can't work with people in these projects that aren't motivated to participate, right? You can't force this upon people, right? No matter what you're facilitating, no matter what types of conversations you're having, it's really like a dyadic bilateral relationship, at least between our organization and the communities that we're working with. So when the folks from Mendoza came to that capacity building workshop, I mean, that's like an eight hour trip, at least. You know, it's a full day and time is the primary resource for farmers around here. So the fact that these 10 farmers were willing to make that trip and spend two days talking with us, that was a good sign that we're prepared to invest what we can, right? To partner with them and they're willing to invest their time and whatever resources they have with whatever we can contribute as an organization to work together. And that's that collaborative approach, right? That we aim for in participatory action research. And for the farmers that didn't come, you know, there's more than 10 farmers at Mendoza. That's perfectly fine, right? We're not going to be forcing any sort of solution on them if, if for whatever reason they don't feel like participating, that's fine. But that's also been sort of our process as an organization, right? We work with whoever wants, who's motivated to work with us collaborate. And then before you know it, it becomes contagious because people around them see outcomes that are meaningful. And then that becomes a catalyst for motivation. And, and that's how we scale out as an organization. You have to be patient. It takes time. It's not something that you can just, like we talked about before, just plan for and say, this is our two-year plan and timeline, and this is our budget, and this is who we're working with. These are the number of outputs and the outcome and the impact. That's not how it works in reality. So, but it does all sort of circle back to the idea of meaningful collaboration, right? It's more than just, oh, we're working with 50 coffee farmers, right? Meanwhile, 40 of them don't give a shit and the project is going to fail. It turns out being a waste of resources. So I think that's really critical in CB part. Yeah, absolutely. And I think you're talking about some of these principles that Stanton had in terms of respect, relevance, reciprocity, and responsibility. And one of the things that I wanted to point out, because I think this is common in a lot of talk about CB part, is that just because the power dynamics are radically different, that doesn't mean that you're not offering and providing certain goods and services. It's not like you're removing your expertise. It's just that that expertise is you're offering it and the community as the drivers of their decision-making can choose what to accept and not to accept instead of you pushing it on them. And I think that's something that is really important to say explicitly because sometimes people assume that the principles of CB par mean that the person who is, you know, you or me should not be there. But what we are offering is actually ideas, information, and a shared discussion so that people can then take what they want from it and, and use it to better their lives. And I think that that acknowledgement that there is something that we're, we have to offer because there is an expertise. There's no reason for us to come in there if we don't know anything about anything. There needs to be some kind of developed expertise, but that doesn't mean that we have the power or the roles to dictate anything other than say, here's some processes to facilitate some change that you wanna see happening while also recognizing that we're not the per people who are making the final decisions. Totally. And to take that one step further, like jargon alert, this is where like a lot of the, the terms that we throw around 
in theory actually come to life, such as community empowerment, community-led, the sense of community buy-in and ownership. When you're creating a, a situation where the power is illuminated on the side of those that are typically not given that opportunity, well, that's what, at least as our organization has seen, has led to what, what we consider a, a success. So it's actually long-term success, right? If you just throw a project at somebody, there's a good chance it's, it's going to fail. And that's pretty much the shortcoming that you see in a lot of government projects and, and certain NGO projects as well, is they just drop these projects and ideas on communities. And that's when you see abandoned greenhouses, for example, or whatever it might be. But when you know the power shift is illuminated in such a way that those who are typically marginalized can actually have a voice that's heard and take control of, of their own development, well, that's when you see long-term impact. And that's what we're going for. Yeah. And just to give give a sense of context in terms of what the difference is. So Adam's collaboration with these community members, with this community in Mendoza was what is your ideal and then how do we facilitate it? Other people say, oh, you know what? Because of issues of Giardia and other kind of foodborne illnesses, we're going to build bathrooms and showers for every community. And they spent thousands of dollars, but none of the community members were part of the construction process or participated in the decision-making process. And so what has happened in the five years since those were built is that they have turned into really nice cooey hutches because everybody, cooey is guinea pigs and everybody grows guinea pigs. And instead of using it for the bathroom that it was designed to, people used it for their own purposes because that's the point. If you're gonna have something, it should be used for the purposes that the community identified. And these are the kinds of projects that happen all the time when it comes to international development. I work in educational development, which is slightly different. So we can talk a little bit about how that looks different than this kind of work. But in terms of CBPAR and what Adam's talking about, I think it's really important to highlight how historically these kinds of initiatives have happened and then also how they do not end up working according to the objectives of the people who are trying to impose them on others. There are different ideals of collaboration, but the messiness is everybody's got a lot to do. There are different things going on. And I think your description really points to how collaboration is actually pretty straightforward, which is, oh, you know, you're welcome to come here. Let's spend two days talking about this. You're identifying the issues. We're going to help facilitate whatever it is you identify. That That's one version of collaboration. The reason that that collaboration worked, however, is because you spent almost 10 years there already building trust having people know who you are and that outreach allowed people to see this organization and you all as a known other that's trustworthy. Um, and I think a lot of that hidden work gets misunderstood in CBPAR because it is hidden work. Like a lot of it's just keeping coming, showing up, showing that you care, showing that you're living respectfully, that the work that you have is relevant, that you're being reciprocal, that you're not just trying to take advantage of opportunities or things and that you're responsible for the work that you're doing so that you do have the expertise and you are able to contribute in meaningful ways. I think we're speaking the same language and you know some of the uh, examples that you offered there are a dime a dozen out here. We could probably do a whole podcast on just talking about 
field development projects and why that is the case, especially around here in the Sacred Valley. There's one more thing that I want to point out how it relates to some of those failures, if you will, which is a strong word, but I'm going to use it. And that has to do with problem identification and the importance of it, right? Because at the core of action research, there's a challenge, right? And, and in the definition that you cited earlier from Ortiz, Adagon, and Stringer, you talked about practical solutions. And to have practical solutions, to create practical solutions, especially in a collaborative fashion, you really need to get to the core of what the problem is. And that's hard to do right? Because everybody has an opinion. So I just want to talk a little bit about what we're doing as it relates to these coffee farmers. It's relatively straightforward, but the point that I really want to make here is that we take both formal and informal measures of really identifying the problem. And at the core of it is communication, right? But formally, you know, we will go out there once you've kind of gone through this process that we've talked about of spending time in the community and gaining that trust, when we go out to Mendoza, we stay there for at least a few days at a time because there's no point in going out there and coming back the next day. So we'll stay out there. And I don't, that's just in itself something that the community recognizes and kind of creates that confidence. But we do create formal mechanisms of understanding the challenge. We'll create surveys, you know, to, to learn more about the problem. You know, we'll talk to farmers about you know, how their production of coffee was before they started um, dealing with the disease and what it is now. We ask them about how their incomes perhaps have, ch have changed. We really just kind of get right to the bottom of it and they're happy to talk about it. You know, we do interviews as well, formal interviews to understand. You know, and that's when you learn about how, well, it's not just because they're losing money because they're getting undercut by buyers economically at least, but you know, we'll also go out and we'll visit their farms. We'll see the actual challenge that they're facing. We'll see the dried up coffee plants. We'll see the extent of their farm and how much of it was producing, how much wasn't. But then there's also like the informal approaches to understanding the situation. So when you're spending a few days or even a week out in, in these communities, you know, you're eating together, you're visiting at their community assemblies, you know, you're, you're, you're allowing people to just sort of tell you what they're, what they're dealing with, playing soccer, you know, just spending time out there, walk, just walking from one farm to the next, and you could be walking an hour up, up the side of a mountain, but you'd be surprised at the information that comes out of those chats. So my point is, dial, you know, circling back to this idea of problem identification, you really, you know, don't make assumptions. Get out there, create formal measures to learn from the people that you're working with, but don't be afraid to just spend time and capture the informal discussions or moments because those can be just as valuable as the formal ones. Yeah, absolutely. So one of the things that I think is important for folks who are listening is to think about how does PAR, participatory action research, and community-based participatory action research look different? One of the issues with action research as a theoretical exercise is that the difference between PAR and CBPAR is, is very subtle in some ways. And I want to bring in some of the work that I've been doing because I think, Adam, our work complements and, and shows differences between what it means to do action research and community-based participatory action research, because you're working with very practical, pragmatic farming issues, and I'm working with educational issues. And so some of the choices that we make and some of the ways that we engage with the work that we do are going to be necessarily different because you're dealing with something very concrete, like, is there crops for me to support my family with? Like that's a very concrete issue. Like the processes are gonna look slightly different because you can take some very concrete actions. So one of the CBPAR projects that I undertook with Kayla Johnson was to build a culturally grounded curriculum with community members from 
12 different small rural communities outside in the highlands just above the Sacred Valley, mostly outside of Ollantaytambo, and that had students who came, you know, as first-generation students to get access to formal education. And one of the things that we noticed and the students noticed when they went to formal education, so they would enroll in the public school and they had a safe place to stay that was monitored by a, a Quechua speaking house director who made sure that the space that they had was safe and that it was culturally appropriate. But one of the things that they noticed was that the teaching and the pedagogy and the knowledge that these students were being taught went almost completely against what they knew to be the truth in terms of how they uh, lived their lives, who they were and their identities as Quechua speaking youth. So what you said, you know, there's a very clear and concrete issue. And in our work, the issue was that the students often felt a sense of being ill at ease, feeling like they didn't know enough or feeling like they didn't have the intelligence because they were asked to learn completely new information in a second language that had no bearing on their realities from before they entered public school. So they had these really serious challenges to overcome to accomplish something that they set out to do, which was to graduate from secondary school. But the problem was all of the knowledge that they came with, all of the resources that they had in their community and from the background that they grew up with and all of the skills they had was being unrecognized. And we didn't know that at the time and the students didn't know that at the time. So part of this collaborative process for us in the community-based participatory action research process was having conversations and having dialogues in the circle just about what is going on with the students and talking you know, with them. There'd be a few adults and teachers who were able to speak with the students in ways that were much more equitable. So we'd have like a seminar where the students would bring up questions or ideas that were relevant to them. And then we would discuss them. And if they had questions for each other, they would talk. Or if they had questions for us, we would talk. And if we had questions for them, we would ask, ask them. So the power dynamics were shifted. And that was the collaboration that we were doing. Through a series of these conversations, we started to identify some of the issues that the students were facing. And the adults and the students both started to realize that there were a lot of things that they didn't know that they were expected to know coming into secondary school. So we were able to have the students then engage in their own independent inquiry projects and report back to us in terms of things that they wanted to learn the values that they had as compared to the values that were kind of in the hidden curriculum of the school, and also thinking through what makes education more relevant to them. And so that was our collaboration, right? So they were the ones identifying the problems. Then we were tasked with facilitating some of the knowledge brokering or knowledge gathering processes with the students. And that was our more community-based participatory action approach. And we developed a whole curriculum design to allow us to ground the curriculum development process in the background knowledge, context, and values of the communities and the students themselves so they could grow from a place of strength. And that took a lot of thoughtful consideration on our parts. This was, in my mind, like a very textbook kind of CBPAR approach in some ways because it was very oriented towards the community as the kind of unit of identity, and the strengths and resources within it. And it solved a problem that the students were facing that they identified themselves. However, one of the reasons that this was slightly different than what you're talking about is because it involved non-material 
issues, right? So these were issues that were very much in alignment with like how students are feeling, how students are being treated, what's going on in terms of their learning and how they feel about their learning and all these things that are really important and needed good quality, equitable, respectful relationships to be able to tease out because it's not externalized, right? So there's some of the issues is just having that level of trust to be like, if I tell somebody that this teacher was mean to me and this is what they said, and this is what it made me feel that the adult I'm telling takes this seriously and is able to work with me to make sure that it doesn't happen again, or there's a way that I can overcome it or I can challenge that. So that's a lot of long-winded preamble to the distinction between participatory action research and CBPAR. The difference is that focus on the community and the community members who are building on their strengths and resources specifically, and really focusing on that kind of collaboration of a building up and the facilitation of knowledge brokering and knowledge gathering that is rooted in the community. Participatory action research is more focused on the participation of all parties to make sure that something is happening. And that subtle but important paradigm shift in terms of what it means to do this kind of research. And one of the issues that I want to talk about a little bit, there's this kind of question of purity, like what is pure action research? What is pure participatory action research? Or what is pure CBPAR and which one is better? And none of them are better or worse. They're just different approaches and different paradigms. And those different approaches and paradigms are geared towards different ways of doing something important for the community. And they'll work in different contexts and they'll work with different kinds of issues. So I think it's really important to say that what makes good quality action research or participatory action research or community-based participatory action research is a very challenging question. But when you see it, you know it. And that's one of the hard things is because you can see when community members and people are working side by side and there's good positive energy and things are getting better and people recognize it, you can see it. But what goes into that is a lot of hidden stuff like Adam was talking about. And even when you're talking about it, you know, sometimes we have the, the jargony words and sometimes we don't have the jargony words. And sometimes people respond to, if you say something particularly eloquently, then that sounds like it was good. And if you don't say it particularly eloquently, then it doesn't sound like it was good. But the proof is in the pudding to use an Americanism when it comes to if you're there and you can see it and you can report on it with the community being in support of that and you can actually show that there are positive changes that are driven by the community for CVPAR or collaboratively developed in PAR or just done through teacher reflection and action to improve pedagogy, you know, that's where you can show that this was a productive process. When all the stakeholders say this was good, was it perfect? nothing's ever going to be perfect, right? I mean, one of the things that we're struggling with in our culturally grounded curriculum development is there are so many different values and so many different objectives that every student has within these communities. So some students want to become weavers, some want to become professionals, some want to become doctors or lawyers, some want to be the mayor, some want to go back to their community, some want to go into the city. How do you build a curriculum that takes all of these different perspectives and allows students to explore all of these options in ways that creates a space so that they can take and develop their own agency to do what it is that they want to do and learn to make good choices through their own explorations. And then how do you also, when we're talking about stakeholders, you know, for something like school, it's a very political space. So the national curriculum and the Ministry of Education may not be so keen on what we're doing, 
what happens when some of your stakeholders are against what you're doing, but the majority of your stakeholders are for what you're doing? These are other questions that CVPAR still need to work out because it's overly simplistic to say that the Ministry of Education are the bad guys. They're not the bad guys. They're not doing what they should be doing, maybe, but they're not people who are saying, you know, and, and I know people in the Ministry of Education, they care a lot about these students, but they also don't know that much about specific students. They just know theory and they know that there is a population out there that is scoring so poorly in their standardized tests. And that's all they know. So how do you work with people like that? And how do you do what uh, Mary was talking about, which is policy advocacy and policy development? So these are other issues that I think CVPAR, PAR, and Action Research need to deal with too. I want to respond. I want to back up just a little bit with respect to sort of what is quality action research or the difference between these different paradigms within action research, because here's one of the challenges that I'm internalizing, I'm facing internally. So when I started doing this work, you know, 10 years ago, it was through the lens of international development. <clears throat> that was what I got my master's degree in along with public administration. The name of the organization that I co-founded is the Indian Alliance for Sustainable Development. Our organization's mission is to harness collective intelligence to support community-led development in the highlands of Peru. And as I consider some of the areas that I want to improve on, right, and we can look at this coffee project, for example, but really any of the projects that I'm working on, to me, it feels somewhat like spontaneous, right? And I know that emergence is a core component of action research, but I don't sit back and plan for these projects in a way where I'm really considering, you know, what method am I working? Am I using, you know, what's my approach to reflexivity? I, we do that, but it's just hyper informal. And I'm kind of wondering for the sake of myself, but also perhaps our listeners, where do we draw that line? Where does the line exist between what we know as international development and community-based action research, in this particular case, in the international realms. You know, I think at the core of it has to do with the idea of creating knowledge. But if you take that one step further, where is that knowledge being disseminated to who and what? And if we're talking about informing other scholars, you know, you've already got your PhD in our tenure track. I'm gonna have my PhD pretty soon. I'm in the, my fourth year, you know, I understand what higher education is and how it functions. I mean, is the difference between good international community-led development and action research, the audience, and who cares, right? Like, who gives a shit? Because I know that oftentimes, you know, I think that our listener base, for example, which is growing, thank you for listening, it's mostly within the realm of the academy, right? And it's scholars and students, and I don't think it's reaching the communities where we're working or people within the community who are, you know, initiating or facilitating really amazing community-based projects. It's certainly not in their language. So I grapple with that a little bit as, you know, we talk so emphatically about action research. And as somebody, Dr. Levitan slash Joe, who's been both a, a facilitator of these projects in the field and in the academy, I'm curious to hear where you draw the line. Yeah, you raise a really important question, and it is something that... Where do we draw the line? What is the difference between CBPAR and just good international development? And I think that the only real difference is that one of the goals of participatory research 
is to share some of the information that you're gathering to a wider audience. And that's not a necessary goal. So one of the things that is a challenge for good quality participatory research or community-based participatory action research is that you are engaging in research processes to make a real change. And when you do that, you are hopefully also gathering information that could be relevant for other people. I like to think of communities in kind of these like concentric circles. So you have your immediate community that you're working with. We're working with 16 students in a, in a classroom, for example. But some of the importance that we discovered could also be shared with other classrooms. It could be shared with other schools. It could be shared with other countries who are dealing with similar issues. And we don't want that knowledge that has been generated by the students themselves in our work to be left there because that's not supporting anybody else either. Community development work is often like we have this, we're going to, you know, if it's good community development work, it uses similar principles. But part of the principles is if you're going to do this work sincerely, if you're going to make sure that the work is useful, is relevant, is going to actually have an impact, that knowledge that you're generating is probably going to be useful for somebody else. And we don't want to have our knowledge stuck in a vacuum because we don't want people to have to reinvent the wheel. One of the things that the human endeavor presupposes, in my mind at least, is that everything that we do can be approved upon. But if people don't know what we do, they're going to make similar mistakes that we make because oftentimes we repeat the mistakes of history. You know, that's one of the reasons why history continues to be a overlooked but incredibly important area of research and exploration. Because if you know, for example, that X way of building a greenhouse doesn't work, but Y way does because of infrastructure issues or climate issues or whatever, that information could be useful for others. And that should be shared. But that's information that's done through research as well as through action. And so maybe it's not like about drawing a line, but I think that in order to make sure that the results and the, the findings that you have through your action research processes are useful and relevant to others, it's really important to read about action research so that you can show what you did in a way that justifies it, points out the shortcomings, as well as the possibilities. You know, I'm not going to say that anything I've done is perfect because it can always be approved upon, but hopefully it's useful enough that there are other people out there who are like, oh, I would like to use this too. And maybe I can improve upon it because here's where they fell short or here's where things that could be done better. And that kind of humility, that kind of active engagement and dare I say rigorous engagement in the process is really important to make sure that there's quality there. And I'm not using rigorous in the sense of like a researcher. I'm using rigorous in the sense of like making sure that all of the considerations that I have done, I have made consciously and that all the choices that the community has made in their collaborative process was done with a collaborative process that was intentional. And then also recognizing that there are a lot of hyper informal ways that this process happens too. So making sure that you can remember and honor those things and make sure that the people who are involved are honored too. All those considerations are part of what I think makes action research important. You know, the fact that you can be sitting around drinking chicha and have a really deep conversation that actually informs your work is one of the strengths 
of all forms of action research in my mind. And that's something that needs to be recognized as well. That goes hand in hand with thinking through a radically different way of engaging in relationship building and what counts as knowledge and what counts as research. Sharing knowledge is an ethical part of it. Instead of doing something like what businesses do, which is put a trademark on it and hide it, you share it and you justify it and you make sure that it is clearly explained. That allows for improved impact in society and for other people to take up this knowledge and use it for their own purposes. I think you nailed it, as always, Dr. Levitan. And, you know, just to maybe start wrapping up, it kind of gives me some additional insight into a question that we've been grappling with off air a little bit, which is like we, with the Action Research Podcast and like the extent to which it's action research, like it feels like action research, but like it's kind of hard to pinpoint exactly how, right? So circling back to this idea, of it's almost like a moral imperative to share these stories and this knowledge with a community of people, you know, that are interested in it. This is one way I think that we can do that. And this is the first time that we were able to kind of really dive into the, the backstory of how we got here and the thing, the ways that we're active in the field as, as action researchers. And it felt really good to talk about these things, you know, bring it back to earth a little bit, take some of these theories and ideas and concepts and jargon and, and hopefully bring them to life for our listeners, it felt really good. And I'd like to work out ways to do that more, not necessarily, I mean, yes, with our own research, but I have no problem saying while we're recording, like, let's bring some other stories onto the podcast. You know, people who are doing really awesome stuff in the field, let's hear what you're doing. Let's hear what your collaborative process is, you know, the ways that you're identifying the problem, the challenges that you're facing, how you're working, whether you're in the academy or, or in the community or, or whatever it might be. I think it's, like I said, a moral imperative as action researchers to be sharing this sort of knowledge and information with the larger community around us. How have you found yourself in the world of action research? Want to be interviewed or share one of your projects? Engage in interactive dialogue with Joe, Adam, and other experts and listeners in the community on Twitter at the underscore AR pod or the action research podcast. You can subscribe to our podcast on most major podcast distribution platforms, including Spotify and Apple Podcasts. Thanks for tuning in to this episode of the Action Research Podcast, created by Adam Stieglitz, Joe Levitan, Shikha DeWalker, and Vanessa Gold. See you next time. <laughs>